We are in Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14, we're going to read the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 14, verse 1. And these are the countries which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed for inheritance to them. By lot was their inheritance as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine tribes and for the half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of two tribes and a half tribe on the other side Jordan, inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Therefore they gave no part unto the Levites in the land, save cities to dwell in with their suburbs for their cattle and for their substance. As the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy foot hath trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then, even so it is my strength now, for war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him, and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite unto this day, because they wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. The name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba. Arba was a great man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. And let's pray. Father, again we ask your blessing on our study of your word. We pray that our faith would increase and that we would uh, remove all doubt of your word and that we would just come to trust you in all that you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse number one, the attention is turned from the the two and a half tribes to the nine and a half tribes. The good portion of chapter 13 was devoted to the two and a half tribes, rehashing all that was done there and the, the promise that Moses had made. Notice verse one there in the middle of the verse, it says, in the land of Canaan. If you turn back to chapter 12, verse 1, we see that it says, 
Now these are the kings of the land which the children of Israel smote and possessed their land on the other side, Jordan. And that is referring to the east side. If you look at chapter 13, verse 8, it says, With whom the Reubenites and the Gadites have received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond Jordan eastward. And again, in Joshua 13.32, these are the countries which Moses did distribute for inheritance in the plains, plains of Moab on the other side, Jordan. So the, the contrast is clear. Verse or Chapter 14 is directing the attention to the land of Canaan. And, and again, as we went over several weeks ago, actually probably several months ago now, the, the land that the two and a half tribes inherited on the east side of the Jordan River it was God's plan that they have that land, but that wasn't part of the initial promise to Abraham. So now the attention is focused on the land of Canaan. We also see that there are at least 12 officials overseeing the distribution. We have Joshua, Eliezer, and then we have a representative from each of the nine and a half tribes or the ten tribes. And so that would be a minimum of 12. And, you know, that would serve to accomplish a couple of purposes, but... but one, at least, it would remove any any suspicion from Joshua of you know him being accused of be, of not being impartial, and, you know, showing favoritism towards one. And there's probably a lot of wisdom there in having you know a representative from each tribe just to you know again to remove any any doubt that this was somehow you know rigged or, or not fair. This was as as one thing we're going to see that's abundantly clear throughout the entire chapter 14. This was all done according to the instructions that the Lord had given. And also the casting of lots protected Joshua from you know, these accusations of, of anything being unfair. We know, we mentioned last week that Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the, lot, into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And that is the method that we see in verse 2 by lot. Again, we don't know exactly what this means. There are seems like about an infinite number of explanations as to what this means. Um, you know, everybody's got their ideas and theories. Um, some people think that it had to do with the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest kept in the, the breastplate on the ephod that they wore. I tend not to agree with that because it, as I go back and look at Exodus chapter 28, verse 30, it seems to, to me that it's clear that the the Urim and the Thummim were only to be used by the high priest. And as I study the book of Joshua, particularly chapter 18, we're told several times that Joshua was the one that actually cast the lots. And so it seems like he would have been usurping the office of the priest if he were to be using the Urim and the Thummim to do that. So I tend not to agree that, that's, that those were what were used. Also, the Hebrew word here for lot in this instance means pebbles for the casting of lots. And it is a different word. If you look over at chapter 15, verse 1, it says, this then was the lot. That's a dip. It's the same Hebrew word, but it's used in a different sense. That means portion or allotment, the same way our word lot today has multiple meanings. So again, we don't know exactly how this was done. I mean, the Living Bible says they literally threw dice before the Lord and Eliezer supervised the lottery. Probably a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable with that, but that's what it says. That's what they. That's what it says. 
Again, there's there's a wide variety of explanations as to how this was done. But the bottom line is, and I think that that's the thing that we need to take away from the the text here is that, you know, as you, as you look at verse 5, as the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. And, you know, again, that's that's mentioned a couple of times throughout the chapter. However they did it, they did it the way the Lord wanted it done. And that's that's the important thing. Verse number 3, the two and a half tribes have already been given their land. Many have speculated that this would have been a time of regret for the two and a half tribes. Um, you know, that they are now viewing, they've, they've, you know, certainly the soldiers have gone through and, and seen the promised land from top to bottom, from east to west, and, and some believe that now this would have been a time of regret that they, you know, now would regret that they accepted land on the east side of the Jordan River. I, I don't see it that way. Um, what, what I do see is that a lot of those that seem to suggest that this would have been a time of regret are those that also are the same ones that argue that they should have never have been given that land on the east side of the Jordan River. And again, you know, if you want to turn to, to Joshua 24, verse 8, you know, I've mentioned this verse probably three or four times in the last couple of months, but I think it's worth worthwhile turning to again. Joshua 24, verse 8. It says, I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side Jordan, and they fought with you. This is the Lord speaking. And I gave them into your hand that ye might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. So, you know, again, back to Joshua 14, it seems to me that those that would argue that, that it wasn't God's plan are, are just ignoring Scripture. And so I, I just don't see that there, this is a time of regret. Um, you know, the... Some people, it just seems that their their attitude seems to be that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And these people, you know, they they had accepted their land. They were, you know, they they could be content with the land on the on the east side of the Jordan River, and at the same time rejoice for those that receiving that were receiving land on the west side of the of the Jordan River. You know, they're they're not mutually exclusive. So. And then we also see here in verse number three, as, as was, we saw in chapter 13, that the Levites were not to be given spe- land specifically to be owned. Um, you know, their inheritance was the Lord. They had a special relationship with the Lord. And again, we're going to see that in, in some of the subsequent chapters as we move along. Verse number four, Genesis Chapter 48, verse 5 says that Joseph had been split into two tribes and Jacob adopted those two sons. And that is how we still arrive at the fact that there are 12 tribes. Even though Levi is excluded, the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, are substituted into the 12 tribes. And so that's that's how there are still 12. And the the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were multiplied greatly, more so than the other 10 tribes. Um, they caught up with and surpassed the many of the other tribes in the in the census and the numbers that are given in Numbers chapter 26. And you know that's that's pretty remarkable given the fact that we're told in Genesis chapter 50 that um, when Joseph died he was 110 he didn't have his first child until he was in his mid 30s and yet uh, the Bible says there in Genesis chapter 50 that that five generations of Joseph's descendants were alive at the time that he died. So God did really bless them, and they multiplied greatly. 
But the Levites, you know, again, as we'll see in, in future chapters, they weren't, you know, they weren't poor. They weren't destitute. It wasn't like they were being left out entirely of, of any material possession. They just had a, a unique relationship with the Lord, a different relationship. And then again in verse 5, as we said earlier, this was all done according to God's command. So we don't have to have any you know, suspicion cast on the method of casting lots here. Verse number 6. This is really an interruption. Um, again, verse 1 of chapter 15 really picks up with the casting of lots. Verses 6 through 15 of chapter 14 are really an interruption. You know, Caleb is essentially coming to Joshua and saying, you know, in essence, he's saying, hold on, you know, before you throw my land into this, you know, casting of lots, you know, I want to I want to let you know that I'm ready to claim the land that I had been promised. Uh, this is, you know, he's he's coming to Joshua and making this point. And, you know, he brings. Those that will bolster his case, he brings others of the of the children of Judah uh, he he mentions that, you know, this was something that Moses had promised and. Um, you know, he's, um, you know, he, you recall that, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, you know, when, when Jacob came to Isaac for the blessing, you know, Isaac said, Hey, I, it's done. I gave it, or Esau came, Jacob said, I gave it, to, I gave it to, uh, Isaac said, I gave it to Jacob. You know, it's too late. And, you know, Caleb, he's not going to let that be the case here. He's, he's speaking up and, and letting it be known that he's ready to claim what he has been promised. Turn back to Numbers chapter 13. I think it would be worthwhile to look at what Caleb is basing his promise on. Numbers chapter 13. We're not going to read the whole story. Of course, I think most of us are all familiar with the the story of the 12 spies being sent and, and 10 coming back with an evil report and 2 coming back with a good report. Caleb being among the two. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 10. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation of the congregation before all the children of Israel. So Caleb tried to encourage the people to no avail, and you know, basically almost cost him his life. They were ready to stone both him and Joshua for even suggesting, you know, trying to, to persuade the people to go in and confront the giants. Numbers chapter fourteen, verse twenty three. Verse 20, and the Lord said, verse, verse 23, Surely they shall all, they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath hold, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went and his seed shall possess it. 
So Caleb had another spirit. He didn't just go along with the crowd. And boy, that's a, a powerful message for us. You know, in our country today, we are, you know, as Bible-believing Christians, we are obviously the, the extreme minority. And, you know, biblical positions on things are, are not very popular. And they weren't very, you know, siding with the Lord at this time wasn't very popular for Caleb and Joshua, yet they chose to do so. But this is God's assessment of Caleb. Remember who's speaking here. God has said that Caleb hath followed me fully. God promised Caleb the land wherein he went. And if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, we see this made, made even more clear. That what Caleb's doing in Joshua chapter 14 is acting upon the word of God that we have here recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34 through 36. Deuteronomy 1.34, And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth, and swear, saying, Surely there shall not one of these, of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. Save Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This incident is, is used, has been used for thousands of years to illustrate faithfulness to the Lord. Psalm chapter 95 verses 7 through 11, the psalmist used it to, uh, plead with the people of that generation not to harden their hearts against the Lord, and now the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 are, are essentially identical to Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, in verse 12, we have the application for the church. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And, you know, the word departing there is a, is a form of the word apostasy. And, of course, Brethren, there is a reference to those of this, those of us that are believers. We are not to doubt. Doubt and unbelief are sins. We are to believe God as Caleb did. We are to believe that God will keep His promises. Verse 13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I remember when Pastor was preaching through the book of Hebrews recently, and he said, while other churches are doing away with services, you know, the writer of Hebrews is, is exhorting these people to, to cling to, to the, you know, the opportunities that they have to gather together. We should be all the more committed to public services that we can use to strengthen each other. I happen to be on, a, on another church's website this week, just accidentally actually, through um, a church here in Omaha, and I noticed that one of the things that they had written on their website was, we still have evening services. And I thought, you know, that's really a commentary on where we are today. Because, you know, obviously the implication there is that a lot of churches don't. 
And, you know, they feel that it's important, that it's beneficial. And again, I, I recall Pastor saying when we were going through the book of Hebrews, you know, are we really going to make the argument? Do we really believe that having less services is going to result in us being more faithful? I mean, it generally doesn't work that way. Most of us would not spend the time that we wouldn't be in services doing other things pertaining to the things of the Lord. So I think if we're honest, we would probably admit that that's probably not going to happen. Verse number 14 here in Hebrews chapter 3, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. Perseverance is required, the kind of perseverance that Caleb demonstrated. This verse is not making the argument that that our salvation is earned by enduring or, or persevering. It's making the argument that our salvation is proved genuine by our enduring and persevering. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Now, Caleb is not mentioned specifically by name in the New Testament, but he's certainly referred to here in verse 16. He would be counted among those that, you know, were not part of the provocation. It says, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses were part of that provocation. And that's the argument that the, you know, that the writer is, is making to the Hebrews. Don't be part of the provocation. Don't be part of the rebellion. You know, you're going to be the minority. We're going to be the minority. We know that. That's nothing new. But we should be willing to, to be just that. Verse 17, these are rhetorical questions. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcass fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? Now, obviously one of the answers to those questions is Caleb. You know, not Caleb. Caleb wasn't one of those that God was grieved with for 40 years. Caleb wasn't one of those that wasn't going to get to enter into the rest. He wasn't one of those that wasn't going to realize the promise. He was one that persevered in verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And of course, Caleb did enter in. And he did persevere. Chapter 4, verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. I mean, really, he's just saying, some of you are in danger of not realizing the promise. You're about ready to drop out. You're about ready to to give up. Verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So the message that God wants to save us was, you know, it was the same message they had back then. And it's the same message we have today. And the consequences are the same. If we don't believe the message, it's of no value. It doesn't do us any good. We have to believe it. And and that's really stated there in verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into the rest, as he said. So this warning that we have in Hebrews chapter 3 is timeless. You know, again, it was it was a message that was used... 3,000 years ago, it was a message that was used by the psalmist. It was a message that was written here to the the church, the first century church. And it's a message that has been to the church ever since then. So it's a timeless message. Now turn back to Joshua chapter 14. Caleb is going to continue to make his, his, his best argument to Joshua as to why he is entitled to this land. He's basing that on the Word of God. No less than five times is it mentioned in this chapter that Caleb's saying, I'm just asking for what God promised me. 
He's saying, I believe God. You know, he's not being greedy. Verse number 7, 40 years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Caleb reminds Joshua's faithfulness. He, he's, saying, he's not just saying he trusted God. He actually did trust God. That's what he says there by mine heart. He's not saying, I just... You know, I, he's not just saying what he... 40 years ago, when he brought back a good report, he wasn't just saying what he thought Moses wanted to hear. He was actually proclaiming his faith. He was proclaiming that he actually believed God, that God was going to give them that land, that God was going to deliver those giants to them. So he, this was his conviction. And now, 45 years later, it's no less his conviction. He is still convinced that God is going to be faithful. You know, he didn't grow bitter over that period of time. And a lot of people probably would have. That's a long time. You know, 40 years to, to, you know, live amongst that rebellious generation and, and, and know that, you know, this delay that is seemingly, you know, a long delay was caused by the unbelief of others. But yet Caleb didn't grow, he didn't grow bitter. Or at least I don't sense that he grew bitter at all. In verse number eight, he makes the distinction and marks the contrast between his faith and the and the lack of faith of, of those that were around him. You know, in order to emphasize his faithfulness, he mentions the unfaithfulness of others. And, you know, that sounds self-serving, you know, and in this case it is. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It's self-serving in that he's saying, I want what's promised to me. You know, I'm taking God at his word. I believed that God, when he told me that I could have this land, I believed Moses and I'm I'm making claim to that promise. God wants us to expect Him to deliver on His promises. I mean, He doesn't want our attitude towards our salvation to be, well, you know, I could take it or leave it. If God decides, you know, He doesn't want to give it to me, that's okay. That God doesn't want that to be our attitude towards our salvation. He wants us to cling to that that hope of our salvation. He wants us to to earnestly desire it. Pointing out the unfaithfulness of others also underscores his great faith. And you know, some some have said, I've heard this said many times, that any time you put someone else down, you're committing the sin of pride. I don't see that here. Caleb is no doubt pointing out the failure of these other people. That's what he says there in verse 8. My brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. There's never any hint that I can find where God says, you know, I'm upset with Caleb for this. I think he's being prideful and greedy and, and you know, he shouldn't be pointing out. He, there, there's just none of that. You know, he's pointing out that he didn't go along with the majority, but instead stood with the minority. Basically, he and, and Joshua and Moses were the only ones that believed. And, you know, Paul kind of makes that same argument in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 4:16 and 17. He says, no man stood with me. But then in the next verse, he says, only the Lord stood with me. And, you know, that was Paul's argument that he understood there were going to be times when he was going to have to be, you know, either the small minority or, or all alone, have no one else to support him. Verse number nine, Caleb continues to build his case. He, he argues not only that the Lord had promised him this land, but he, he makes it clear that Moses also affirmed his right to this land. Verse number 10, 
Caleb gives glory to the Lord. He points out that it was God's faithfulness to him to keep him alive. Caleb doesn't make the argument, you know, I survived this seven-year conquer because I'm such a great warrior. That's not the argument that he makes. He said, no, all the glory goes to the Lord. The Lord brought me through. The Lord delivered me. The Lord kept me alive. He's not proclaiming his faith in himself. He's proclaiming his faith in the Lord. He's making the argument that he, that God has kept him young. Uh, you know, look at verse 11. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now. You know, every time I read that verse, I, I just think, that seems like an embellishment. <laughs> that doesn't seem very logical. That doesn't seem possible. It doesn't, seems like an exaggeration. Um, you know, I was carrying heavy logs out of a ditch yesterday and, and I wasn't thinking, you know, this, this is just as easy as it was 20 years ago. I, I just wasn't thinking that. I wasn't even close. I was thinking this was a lot easier 20 years ago. And that's, that's, this is 40 years. Some argue this was all in his head. He really believed it. Um, you know, even if physically he wasn't as strong, he, he mentally was as strong. Um, you know, he really believed it. He was excited. He, he was really excited to see what the Lord was still yet going to do. You know, he's making the argument that he is an able warrior. Uh, he's, you know, he's fully trusting in the Lord. He's, he's, he knows that the Lord is going to see him through. Verse number 12, and here, here's where he makes his request. And, you know, and it is a request. It, it's not really a demand. I mean, Caleb is, you know, he, he's respectful of authority. He, he has submitted to the authority of Joshua. I mean, Caleb is, is 20 years older than every other man in the entire nation except Joshua. And, but he doesn't have an attitude, you know, that I'm all this and I'm all that. He's got an attitude here of submission. He's asking Joshua for this. I mean, he certainly expects to get it because he knows that, you know, it's God's promise. But nevertheless, he's going through the proper protocol. You know, he's not being disrespectful of Joshua's authority. I like what Dale Ralph Davis has to say about this. It's not great faith in God that is required, but faith in a great God. There's a difference. You know, we, we sometimes get hung up on the the amount of faith that is required. Um, there, there's a difference. Faith is not being an optimist. It's about believing God. Another question that really begs to be asked is, you know, what, what is this whole incident even necessary for? Why does Caleb even have to make this request? If he wholly followed the Lord, does he really believe that God forgot about God's promise to him? Does he believe that Joshua forgot about the promise. But nevertheless, he, has to, he, he does take action. He's taking this action to make this request and come and make this long argument to Joshua about how he's deserving of this. Faith in the Lord does, again, as, as we said earlier, as we said in previous weeks, doesn't negate action on our part. There's still that is that needs to be done. I remember in 1994, when, when my wife was, was quitting her job after Bradley was born, um, 
You know, I went in and asked my boss for a raise to ease the pain of losing her income. And I remember thinking about that. You know, we had prayed about that for quite a while. You know, how were we going to make ends meet with, you know, her not working anymore? And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, you know I could use a raise. Why don't you just put it in the mind of my boss to give me one? Why do I need, why should I have to go ask? But I did go ask and received. Um, you know, God wants our participation in the process. You know, and for you, maybe something different. Maybe you are wanting a spouse. Um, maybe you are wanting in a different job. Maybe you are wanting, I don't know, fill in the blank. But God wants your participation in the process. This is what Caleb has done. I don't think Caleb thought that the Lord forgot about his promise, but yet he comes and, and he's active. He's, you know, he's involved in the process. He's taking action. He's making the request. Also notice that Caleb laid the groundwork for his request. Look at verse number nine. Caleb says, I have been, I have wholly followed the Lord my God. He had been doing that for 40 years. You know, his argument to Laban was, I've been the model employee. He had laid the groundwork. Um, you know, don't, ask, don't go ask your boss for a raise if you don't deserve a raise. If you haven't been faithful, if you're not a good employee, that, you know, Caleb is making the argument that he had wholly followed the Lord. And so, you know, God is, is responding, rewarding him for his faithfulness. You know, sometimes we, you know, we, we fail to, to equate faithfulness with, with God's response. Yes, God may be merciful to us and answer our requests even though we don't deserve them, but, um, you know, the pattern is, is that God, res, res, you know, rewards faithfulness. You recall the incident with Moses. Moses had asked the Lord if he could go into the promised land, and God said, no, you can't. You dishonored me in front of all the people. And I think if you go back and and one of the things that I've, I've become rather convinced of, if you go back and look at the Scriptures, I think it's in Numbers 27, you know, God really makes the argument to Moses, it's, it's really not even so much what Moses did. It's not the striking of the rock. It's the fact that he did it in front of all the people. It was the public dishonoring of the Lord that Moses did that really was what made the Lord so upset. But anyway, the Lord said, no, you haven't been faithful. And I'm not going to honor your request. And so, you know, our faithfulness is, you know, the Lord honors our faithfulness. Caleb says in, here in this verse, he's trusting the Lord. He trusted the Lord not only 40 years ago to drive out the giants, but he's going to continue to trust the Lord to drive out the giants. Whatever time he has remaining, you know, he's already 85 years old, but whatever time he has left, he's going to continue to trust the Lord. His faith is going to be unwavering. He knows that his success is dependent on the Lord, not himself. And that's what he makes clear here in verse 12. And Caleb's motives are not wrong. You know, James chapter 4 warns us against asking for things with improper motives. You know, if we're just wanting to, to consume it upon our lust and our greed. But that's not what Caleb wants. It, this, the, the, his motives are correct. This isn't for self-indulgence. This is, you know, for an inheritance for his family and to be, honor, and to be, to be faithful to the Lord. And, and we'll see in later chapters that Caleb does just that. He gives of his land to the Levites, and he gives of his land for the cities of refuge, all of those things that are required. He is not stingy or greedy with what he has been given. Also, some point out, 
probably noteworthy that maybe some of the, I think the emphasis here at the beginning of verse 12 is clearly Caleb wants the mountain that, as was as we saw in Deuteronomy, that he had actually walked upon. But others see that Caleb is saying, give me this mountain, and then they see the reference to the Anakim or the giants as Caleb saying, I want the hardest task. They just see that as Caleb's personality, that he liked conflict, that he, you know, his attitude was, you know, out of all, out of all the, the, the land that, that needs to be conquered in, in the land of Canaan, give me the most difficult part because I've got the greatest faith. And there may be some truth to that. In other words, you know, if this is the place where the, where the, the greatest giants live and they're the tallest and they're the fiercest and they're the, the ones that people fear the most, give me that land. I'll take it. Now, that's not my attitude. I usually take the path of least resistance. You know, some people wonder why I sit in the front row. When I came to this church, the foyer hadn't been opened, and that is the easiest seat to get. You don't have to fight over it. Nobody wants to sit in the front row. But that was, that, that's the argument they're making about Caleb. He wasn't like that. You know, Caleb's attitude was, just give me the hardest task and I'll, I'll readily embrace it. Again, maybe some truth to that. Verse number 13, Joshua certainly blesses him, thanks him for his service. I mean, he grants the request, I mean, as if he had a choice. I mean, Joshua certainly understood the, the binding of God's Word. I mean, there was no way Joshua wasn't going to grant this request. But again, they're going, you know, Caleb's going through the proper protocol and, and Joshua grants the request and gives him Hebron. Uh, that was one of the cities specifically mentioned in Numbers chapter 13 that they had that they had visited when they went to spy out the land, and that is one of the ones that Caleb had walked on, and that's the one he wanted. Verse number 14: the the um, request was granted because he wholly followed the Lord, and you know, I, I our loyalties are often divided. Uh, you know, it's somewhat uh, intriguing for me to even contemplate what that really means to have wholly followed the Lord. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I can relate to that. Certainly, I mean, Caleb was a sinner. He was a human just like you and I. Um, but, but nevertheless, that's a pretty powerful statement. I mean, you know, for that to be said of, of one of us or, or any of us, I mean, that's, that's, quite a, that's quite a testimony to say that we, that we fully followed the Lord. Verse number 15, in the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. The name of the city is changed to Hebron, and the, the new name, Hebron, means union, and, and the name is to reflect the, the oneness, the solidarity, the closeness with the Lord that Caleb enjoyed. And this city, you know, as, as you're, I'm sure, very familiar, has a very prominent history you know, it is. It was, you know, mentioned many times in Scripture, before then and, and after then, and it's still a city today, and and it's just enjoyed a, a place of prominence. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the city also became a city of refuge, a city for the Levites. That's in Joshua chapter 20 and 21, and and those verses seem to to indicate that Caleb was was more than willing to part with part of what he had been given. You know, he was willing to set that aside. He was ready to let whatever he had been given 
to be used in the Lord's service. And, and you know, there's really a, a great example there. Um, you know, Caleb's attitude wasn't, you know, I'm going to retain every bit of land and hold on to it for my family and, and save it for my descendants. And, you know, it's, it's all going to be an inheritance. That wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, I'm going to let it be used for the Lord's service and to support the, the work of the Levites and, and, you know, just to support the things of the Lord. He was very, you know, that, that his, his faith was demonstrated in every aspect of his life and, and that meant with, it, you know, with regard to his possessions also. Alright, we are done with chapter 14. We'll get into chapter 15 next week. We do have a few minutes remaining. Anyone have anything they want to, to contribute or, or comment on? I welcome your, your comments. Anyone? Don't want to keep you longer than I have to. Okay, you're dismissed.